<clears throat> Turn please to Mark in chapter 11. Mark 11, I want to read beginning with verse 27 and read through chapter 12, verse 12. So Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Once you've found that, please pray with me. Father in heaven now, I pray that you would help us as we, as we hear this word read, that um, it would enable us uh, to see, uh, to understand, to consider, uh, to embrace our Lord Jesus Christ. And that that, Father, would bring you glory and would be a blessing to us even, even as we hear it. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will, tell you, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers who went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect, them, uh, collect from them some of the fruits of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him, with, treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now we're in the, this week of Jesus' life that begins, and what we call Palm Sunday, works its way through Jesus' betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, and then... Uh, comes to an end, though we know it to be a beginning, on that following Sunday when he is resurrected from the dead. It's interesting that most of the gospel material that we have about Jesus comes from that particular week, that particular point in time. Um, in Matthew's gospel, for instance, uh, more than, more than uh, a fourth of it is taken up by this last number of days in the life of Jesus, at least as he is on the earth. In, in Mark's gospel, it's, it's, it's more than a third. In, John's gospel, I mean, in, in Luke's gospel, it's about a fifth. In John's gospel, it's almost half 
comes from these last days in the life of Jesus. And you wonder why. Well, it's a significant week, no doubt. Significant in the sense that everything was culminating for Jesus, really. He had come to die. He had come to save his people from their sins. And so, so we have to see this, this week. We have to see what was going on there because he did, in fact, come to, di- to die. That is the crux the cross of the matter really and so this is a very significant week but it's also a very significant week uh, in Israel because it's the Passover week and it's interesting that during this particular week during this Passover week all of these lambs were being examined to see if there was a blemish on any of them if they could in fact be a good right sacrifice and here we have Jesus the very Lamb of God being examined now it was hope, the hope of the chief priests and the, the teachers of the law and the elders of Israel, that they would find sufficient flaws in Jesus. But they never did. He rebuffed them at every point. Jesus was shown to be this unblemished lamb that would be, would be slain. In fact, we're entering into a time of great conflict in the life of Jesus. We've seen some before, but, but now it reaches its, its head, really, because in just these verses, as I began in verse 27, if you read all the way through chapter 12, you'll find seven different conflicts that Jesus has with these religious authorities. They're coming after him and coming after him and coming after him with hopes that they'll be able to, 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 to cause him to fall, to cause him to fail, so that they really can arrest him, so they really can uh, do away with him. And so we see this in the life of of Jesus, And so they come now to him with uh, this question. They say, by what authority are you doing these things? Or what things? What are the things that concern them most? Recently, just the day before, Jesus had, as we call, cleared or cleansed the temple. That was a huge thing. It was a huge thing because if he didn't have the right authority to do that, it was, it was actually blasphemous. It was actually entering into the temple of God and overruling and overriding the priests who had set up this system of being able to purchase these lambs and purchase these pigeons and so forth and exchange these coins. He was really overriding the authority of the temple itself when Jesus did this, overriding the authority of, these, of the, the Sanhedrin, which was comprised of these chief priests, these teachers of the law, and these elders of Israel, the, the ruling body, if you will, of Israel. At this point in time, Israel was under the authority of the Romans, but the Sanhedrin acted as, as kind of a buffer between the Romans and the people. And they, they had authority over the religious life, if not at least part, the political life of Israel at that point in time. And so they were the, they were the big guys. And, and Jesus came in and essentially in his cleansing of the temple overruled what they were doing in there. And not only that, but he actually pronounced judgment upon them. Because he said, Jeremiah the prophet has spoken about this desecration of the temple when he, when he said that you would make the temple of God into a den of thieves, that's precisely what had happened. So they came to Jesus. What authority do you have to do these kinds of things to over, overrule us in the context of our temple worship, in the context of our temple life? But, but, it, but it was no doubt more than that. This seems to be a repressed kind of a question. Uh, they've been watching Jesus They've been watching Jesus all along. The people were running around saying, this man teaches with, with authority. With, with great authority, more authority than anyone we've ever heard. This, this Jesus can walk in and say, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. He was, he was taking authority over everything that they thought, over everything that they knew. He was taking authority over the very word of God, over the Torah. 
Because you see, these chief priests and these teachers of the law and these elders of Israel had interpreted it in a particular way concerning, for instance, Sabbath observance, concerning fastings, concerning how one must wash themselves and, and be prepared to even eat. And Jesus acted differently than they. And he said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. And so he took authority even over the understanding of the very word of God. Did he have the authority to do that? Did he have the, the right to do that? He said he taught was one with great authority. He took authority over, over evil spirits. He entered into the spiritual world, if you will. And he made it visible before their very eyes. And he took authority over these evil spirits. They were compelled to listen to him when he spoke. He took authority in the natural realm because he even came against disease. And when he spoke, diseases were healed. They couldn't stand in his presence. He seemed to have authority over our physical bodies. He took authority in the context of nature. When he walked on water, when he fed thousands of people with just a little bit of food. When he spoke to a raging storm. As if he had the right to control nature itself. And it listened. It cooperated. It calmed down. The big question about Jesus from these religious leaders is what authority is he doing these things? Because you see, he even entered into the very area of our souls. And he told people that their sins were forgiven. And only God could do that. This was a huge question for these religious leaders because on the one hand, they saw themselves to be the authority. They were under the authority of what they would refer to as the tradition of the elders. Generation after generation, it was, it was their authority. And now Jesus was coming and he was, he was usurping their authority. He was standing over above them. He was even calling them to submit to him. What authority do they have? And he realized if we can show that his authority is false then we can arrest him for blasphemy and we can have him killed. That was their ultimate hope in all of this. But you see, that's the question. That's really the question. In fact, it's the question of all history. It may be the only question in all of history that really ultimately matters. By what authority is Jesus? Because you see, this one Jesus commands us to forsake all and follow him. Does he have the right to do that? Uh, there's a difference, you see, between power and authority. Someone may have the power to enter into your house, but they may not have the authority to enter into your house. Power just means you can make somebody do something. Authority means you have the right to compel them to do something. Or you might be able to pronounce judgment on someone, but unless you're an authorized judge, you don't have the legal right to pronounce judgment upon them. Uh, you might be able to take a knife and open someone up and take out their appendix, but unless you've passed your medical boards, <laughs> you don't have the, the right, the legal right to do that. There's a difference between power. Was this just sheer power? Or did Jesus have authority? Did he have the right to enter into every sphere of life and command and expect then everything in life to follow, to obey, to submit to him? That's the real question. Does Jesus have authority in all these areas? Because he calls us to follow him. He calls us to love him. 
with a love greater than a love that we have for even our, our father and our mother, our children, our own lives. He asks us to submit everything to Him. He asks us to trust Him with our past. That if we trust in Him, all of the sins that we've committed are really forgiven. He asks us to trust Him with our present. Not only our sins that He will forgive us, but also with our ambitions and with our desires and with our vocation and with how we parent and how we vote and how we spend our money and how we make our money and how we treat other people and the kinds of lives we live. He says, I want you to submit all of that to me and follow me in everything. Does he have the right to do that? And we know as we raise children, as they get older, they look at their parents. We looked at our parents and we say, they don't have the right to tell me what to do anymore. <laughs> and there's a certain legal right which, which they might be right. But does Jesus have the right to enter into our sphere of life and compel us to follow him? He says, you must submit your past to me. You must submit your present to me and all that's about it. You must trust me with your future. You must trust that I have the right to confer eternal life. That if you'll trust me, that when you die, you'll meet God forgiven and be able to live in his presence forever and ever. You see, when we die, we face God. And he asks, well, he doesn't, I, I don't know how all this happens. But the way we think about it anyway, in our own lives, it seems that he might ask us why he should let us into heaven. And you know, you know the answer. I mean, our ticket, if I may be that pedestrian about it, our ticket is Jesus. That that's the card we play, that he's the one. We say, the only way, God, that you'll accept me into glory, into your heaven, is because of Christ. Not because of me, not because of anything that I've done, but only because of him. And I come on his authority. I come by right of being related to Jesus. I come by right of being in him. A sad day for us it would be if Jesus doesn't have the authority, the eternal authority, to confer upon us eternal life. Because you see, if that's not true, we're sunk. We're, we're, we're submitting everything to that. And that's what Jesus is calling us, inviting us, really commanding us to do. And so the question of the ages, the question of history, the question really that every individual must grapple with, whether they know it or not, and it's our job to suggest that they do, is by what authority does Jesus do these things you can't really live you can't live at peace until you've wrestled with that until you've come out on the right side of that and so Jesus is talking to these people and he's you know if you'll just forgive me part of me just marvels when I read the gospels at Jesus' wisdom you know I've been in situations before when I know I'm sure there's a clever thing to do here I just am not getting it you know, I wish that I, I knew the clever thing to say. And part of me just marvels at the wisdom of Jesus as he deals with people who are in conflict with him. He has the advantage, of course, of being able to peer into their hearts. And he has the advantage of being the divine son of God and all that. So, I, you know, I understand my weakness here. But, but, but it's just amazing to me and, and, and marvelous to me is how he does this. And so he's, he's with them. And he, and he knows that in a sense, if he says, I have the authority of heaven, I have the authority of God 
that they at that moment in time would arrest him. It's, but it's not time for him to say that. It's not time to be that open. It's not, it's not time for them to arrest him. And he has a few more days of this before he gets to be arrested. And he knows that. And he's in control of this whole situation. And so he enters into the means of the human experience and, and, and he toys with them in, in a sense because, because he asks them this question. He says, all right, I'll tell you if you tell me about John the Baptist's authority. Was it from heaven or was it from men? Now you see, when we think of the baptism of John, we think of a number of things. First of all, it was a baptism of repentance. And it was very offensive, this baptism of John. It was very offensive, especially for the religious leaders, because baptism is something that, that Israel, the Jewish leaders, would put Gentiles through, not Jews. Because they were born into the household of Israel. They had been circumcised. circumcised. They didn't need to repent, really, of anything. Now, Gentiles, they did. And so you could, you could wash a Gentile, but, but, but not a Jew in this sense. And so, you see, if they would have said this baptism was from heaven, then it would have been an admittance that they, too, needed to repent. That put them in a bit of a bind because they didn't go through John's baptism. And if it had been from heaven, then they would have disobeyed. God, not only that, but John, in the context of his baptism, was really a forerunner of the Messiah. He was the one who came to announce that the Messiah is coming. And, and if they would say John's baptism was from heaven, then they would be admitting that he was pointing out the Messiah. And guess who he had pointed to? And that really would have messed up their whole, their whole uh, debate. And then, of course, when Jesus was being baptized, John the Baptist was not the only one who spoke. But in fact, it was God who pointed out that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. If they would have said John's baptism is from heaven, they would have had to admit that that word was God and that Jesus was the Messiah. And of course then, they're sunk. And, and I don't know how this plays out. I, I think about it. I'm a movie director often in my mind and I'm trying to think about how all of this is playing out. But you get the sense that there's this, this pregnant pause and they're kind of... And Jesus is kind of relaxed and watching this whole scene take place. Now the disciples, clueless as they are, are probably wondering what's really going to happen. But Jesus is calmly waiting. And of course they come back with a lie. We don't know, they said. Oh, but they did. They were culpable in this. They, they, they knew. But they couldn't admit it because they knew the bind they were in and they knew what they would be giving up if they admitted it. So then Jesus goes on, tells them a story, a parable, and, and he, uses, he uses stuff, he uses people, he uses an illustration that they would have readily understood. There were vineyards all over the place, and, and they understood the way vineyards operated very often. It took a vineyard a while before it could be productive. You had to invest, the vines had to grow, and so forth and so on. So very often, the owner of the vineyard, would, uh, would, would have tenants who would come in and, and work the vineyard and, and get it up to where it could be productive and then he would take rent and so forth and so on from it. So they, they understood this incident, these kinds of incidents taking place, but Jesus tells them a story about this one vineyard owner who um, eventually sent servants to collect the production, the fruits of this vineyard, at least some of it, that which the owner had contracted for and so forth. And the tenants were not very receptive. They, they beat some of these servants. They killed others. 
But in the astounding patience of this owner, he kept sending more servants. And then he realized that he had one to send that he didn't send, who was significantly different than the servants. The servants, you see, may have had the power and a certain measure of delegated authority, but the son, the son of the owner, had real authority. He was an heir. He was an owner. He had legal right now, in and of himself, to come and make the proclamation and say, you owe these rents. And so he came, and as he was coming, of course, the, the tenants began to think, if we kill him, we become the owners. If we kill him, this then is ours. And so they killed him. The owner, of course, not to be thwarted, sent others who came then and killed those tenants and took the vineyard from them and gave it, and gave it to others. Now, the uh, application of this is so obvious, I don't really need to go through it. I mean, we understand that, that Israel, in, in the prophet's words, was the very vineyard of God, that, vineyard, that God was the, the vine dresser, that God was the vineyard owner, and Israel, Israel was to be his vineyard. If you read, for instance, in Isaiah in chapter 5, you find a, a, wonderful, a wonderful hymn, really, to the vineyard of God. And how it was that he expected Israel to be, to be productive and how he would, he would be the one who would love her and prosper her, that she was to be the very vineyard of God. And so they, they would get that. Not only that, that the, the prophets had come, the servants of God had come, and when they came, they were treated poorly. Some of them were beaten, some of them were... Some of them were killed. Jeremiah even speaks. Jeremiah, a prophet himself, says, says, this is how you've been treating the prophets. He knows that he's a prophet being treated the same way. They'd be rejected, that they'd be killed. In fact, the author of Hebrews, as he speaks of those great ones with faith, uh, of faith just has some sort of summary uh, verses here in the end of, of Hebrews 11. Don't turn there. Just let me read a couple of verses. He speaks of those of faith. He says, they were stoned. They were sawed in two. Tradition says that's what happened to Isaiah. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. That, that is a description of the prophets. And so they would understand that, 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 that Jesus is talking about them, that he's talking about Israel, that he's talking about the tenants, the, the, the rulers of Israel, that he's talking about the servants who had come. And now he sends one who has authority like none other, the very son of the owner, you get this sense that Jesus is thinking do you get this? do you see it? you want to know the authority of which I come with which I come by what authority do I do what I do? it's the authority as the son as the owner as the one who has the very right to command you to be fruitful the very one who has the right to come and command from you that which you have promised and that they didn't give it and that they killed the son, of course he came and he had the very right to judge them. But then he goes on, Jesus does, in verse 10. And he says, haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now that's a little sneaky. Because there you see Jesus is quoting Psalm 118 to them. And it was a psalm that was sung during the Passover time. And it was a psalm that, that had in it, oh, words like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They had just heard that song the previous Sunday 
as Jesus was entering into Jerusalem. And there was a sense that that psalm was now already being associated with Jesus. But it had always, in their mind, been associated with Israel and the Messiah who was to come. Because in some sense, the nation of Israel, especially during the time that they were in captivity in Egypt, was like a stone that was rejected, but then it became the capstone. Israel became the most important nation in all the world because through it, the Messiah would come. Uh, That was the promise to Abraham that that I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing. In fact, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Why? Because through it, through Israel, the Messiah would come. But now you see, Jesus is applying this to himself. A turn to Acts in chapter 4 to show you how Peter very clearly understood it. Acts chapter 4 <clears throat> and verse 8. This is Peter defending um, himself. They had just uh, healed this man who was lame and um, everyone got upset about that because he did it in the name of Jesus. So verse 8 of Acts chapter 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He, that is Jesus, he is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now notice this quote again from Psalm 118. The stone you builders rejected. Now, the stone is clearly Jesus. You builders are clearly them, these elders and leaders of the people. The rejection of Jesus is clearly his crucifixion, which has become the capstone happens at his resurrection. Notice, just let me go back and you can see the parallel between the middle of verse 10. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the stone, whom you crucified, you builders rejected, but whom God raised from the dead, which has become the capstone. See how those two just parallel very nicely together? Because you see, it was in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that authority was uh, affirmed that authority was confirmed and even conferred. Because at that point, he was the conquering Lord. He had shown himself to be the faithful high priest. In the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, he becomes the capstone, the capstone of everything. Now, you know in a building, the capstone or the cornerstone or the keystone, depending on what part of the building you're talking about, is the stone. It's the stone that if you take out, all the other stones fall apart. And interesting, in the days of Jesus, as we said last Sunday, the temple was still being refurbished. Parts of it were still being rebuilt. There may well have been these huge stones out there that they were still using on the temple, some which were approved and some that were not. And you could look at a stone that had been rejected. And stones that are rejected look like stones that should be rejected. You look at that stone and you go, eh, that'll never work. Let's throw it over there. 
Jesus said, no, take one of those stones. And that's going to be the stone. You may not have recognized it first time around, but, but, but wait, you'll see. It'll be the stone. And at his resurrection, he proved himself to be, he showed himself to be the stone. For instance, in Romans, in chapter 1, in verse 1, Paul writes this. It says, Paul, a servant... I'll give you a second to get that. It's just over a few pages. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, he was a man, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. It was his resurrection that was this great declaration that Jesus has the authority as the Son, the very Son of God. When he was walking around the earth, it, it, was, it, was, it was a question. It, it, by what authority does he really do this? But at the time of his resurrection, when he comes back from the dead, that's God's way of screaming to all the world, this is my Son. This is him. Listen to him. He has the authority of God because he is God in the flesh. This is who he is. He has the right to command you. He has the right to compel you. He has the right to lure you. He has the right to draw you. He has the right to enter into your life and cause you to trust in him and to follow him. He has every right to do that because he is the Son of God. Not only that, he has every right to come in you and to transform your life. He has every right to come to you and change you. And he has every right to come and change you so that you reflect him. There are times when we criticize people, be they teachers, coaches, sometimes even parents, we criticize them because we say, what you're trying to do is, is, is make that child, make that person just like you. And the reason that that's wrong is because we're just people. And this person's a person like we're a person, and they should be able to be a person. But you see, Jesus has every right, because he's the very Son of God, to come and conform us to his image, to make us like him. He has the right to do that because he's been declared with power to be the very Son of God. And the reason that the resurrection declares him be, to be the Son of God is because, first and foremost, it shows his utter purity. Death could not hold him. Why? Because he had no sin. Hell could not hold him. Why? Because he had no sin. He died for our sins. When that was paid for, he was done. He rose from the dead. It proved his purity. It proved his integrity because he said this was going to happen. He said over and over again he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to be beaten and he was going to be betrayed and he was going to be killed and then on the third day he would rise. I mean, Jesus, if, if he wasn't going to do that, he never should have said that. And that's a pretty outlandish thing to say. You see, I suppose you could get people to beat you and arrest you. You could probably get people to kill you. But rising from the dead is... That's a difficult one. And unless you're going to be able to do that, you better not tell people ahead of time. But he did. And he did. He told them. And he rose. And he says, Therefore, I 
have the authority to do these things. In fact, he has the authority then really to forgive sins. Why? Because he paid for them. He has the authority to come to a person and say, your sins are forgiven. How does he know that? He knows that because he paid for them. It was his blood that he went and sprinkled on the very mercy seat of his Father in the throne in heaven. And he said, these are paid for. I know that. You trust me that your sins are forgiven. I know it because I paid. And we say, well, how do we know that you have the authority to pay? How do we know that you have the authority to go into heaven and pay our sins on our behalf? And it's because he's the very Son of God. And he said, I proved it because death didn't hold me. I died, but I paid for your sins, and now I'm back because death couldn't hold me. In fact, and all of this was just, for instance, in Romans in chapter 3. There's a wonderful uh, half a verse there's wonderful whole verses, but this wonderful half a verse in verse 26, the second part of verse 26, simply says this. After it speaks of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, it says, So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now that's very important. Because you see, if God's going to be moral, he can't acquit the guilty. That's just immoral. It's immoral to tell a guilty person that they can go free. We all know in our guts there's something wrong with that. If someone has committed a crime, there, there has to be payment for that. You just can't smile to a rapist and say, be warmed and filled and go. You can't say to a murderer, oh, that's okay. You can't say to a thief, oh, that's okay. You can't say to an adulterer, oh, that's okay. And be just. But God can and still be moral. He'd still be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. How does he get away with that? Because Jesus paid for it. The sin has been punished. It's been paid for. And so his justice is fulfilled and honored. And he can still then pardon the likes of us. And how do we know that? All because of the resurrection of Jesus. At that point, he becomes the capstone of everything. He becomes the most important one of everything. In him, it all fits together. Apart from him, it all falls apart. And when he rose from the dead, then he was given the name, and I read this in our call to worship, so you don't need to turn to that because you all know, because you were listening to Philippians chapter 2, that he was given the name that is above every name that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Should bow because Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name he was given. The sovereign one. The one who has all the rights to confer whatever he wishes to confer. And thus, when he says sins are forgiven, they are. When he says diseases are healed, they are. When he says evil spirits are driven out, they are. When he says, you've heard this, but I say to you, that's the truth. Because he's the very son of God. Ephesians 1 puts it like this in chapter, or the middle of chapter 19. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. 
and God placed all things under his feet, that is, under the feet of Jesus, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus has every right because he's resurrected from the dead and his resurrection say he paid for our sins and that he is the pure, free one and thus now he's exalted and he rules and reigns over everything. Does he have the authority? Yes, he has the authority to do whatever he pleases. And everything that he says goes because he has the right because of who he is thus. When you trust in him, you have full assurance. This verse that we throw around all the time, almost as a, as a Hallmark card, nothing against Hallmark cards, don't write me. But uh, this verse that says in Romans 8:28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. How do we know that? How do we know that all things really work for good? for those who love God and are the ones who have been called by him and live according to his purpose. The only way that we know that is because the one in whom we trust is the Lord. And the one in whom we trust has authority over all things. Therefore, he's the one who can make all things work for good. If it isn't true of Jesus, if he's not the capstone, if he hasn't been resurrected, then that's a lie. We can't count on it. We can't be assured of it. We can only be assured of it if he really is the one and has the authority over all things so that he can cause all things to work together. Nothing can stand against Jesus, ultimately. And if we stand in him, what then can stand against us? In fact, Paul makes that very point in verse 32. Or in verse 34, he says, Who is he who condemns? And he says, Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us, saying that he will take all of that and he will defend us. And since he will defend us, then we can have assurance. But he can only defend us if he really is the one who has authority to defend us. He can only defend us if he's really the Lord. He can only defend us if he's risen from the dead. He can only defend us if he's the very son of God, you see. But he can defend us because he has risen from the dead. All that he was traveling and was working his way through various provinces, various cities, comes to Athens. When he comes to Athens, he finds a group of philosophers, perhaps not unlike Lawrence finds a group of people who love to talk about stuff. Love to talk about everything. They sit in coffee, sh they sit on the street corners and they talk about everything. So Paul comes and he happens to notice that they have this, this monument to the unknown God. Paul says, that's interesting. They, they, they have this sense of God, but he's unknown and no doubt unknowable. They just keep talking about him and talking about him, come to the conclusion they can't really know him, but they can talk about him, of course. And so they continue to talk, and so Paul comes up to them, and he essentially says, let me introduce, let me put a name on your monument. Let me, let, let me introduce the one about whom you think you can't know because he's made himself knowable. And so just let me read what he says to them. 
It says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now commands all people everywhere to repent. Is he so, so far, Paul has, has, has just said stuff that they could listen to and think about a response to. It would be like you going in and saying, you know, I, 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 I know God and he's great. And, and I follow him, and he's a blessing to me. And you know what happens when you say that? People pat you on the head and say, that's nice. I have something like that, too. It's just nice. But nobody really gets all that terribly offended by it, because you really haven't said anything with any great authority, and you haven't really asserted any great authority over this. It's just been nice. And so Paul's been... Finally, Paul says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance... <laughs> I have a funny feeling somebody wrote that down and went, wait a minute. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Of what? And how does he have the right to command us to do anything? I know his name's God, but it hasn't bothered me in the past. For, Paul says, he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And you say, oh, how could that be? What gives him the right to judge me? And he goes on. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And there's something in history, there's a factor, there's something that took place that, you, that compels us to listen. It's his very one who is raised from the dead. And their response, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. You didn't get a sense. They were patting Paul on the back and said, thank you for sharing that. Because finally he drew a line. Finally there was someone different than the rest. Finally there was someone who had authority and it was this one who had been raised from the dead and that gave him authority to be listened to and that gave him the authority then, the scripture tells us, over all things and to compel us to submit everything to him and follow him. That's the question. That's the very question of our lives. Who has authority over us? whether we know it or not, whether we can see to it or not, whether we believe it or not, the one who has authority over us is this one who was raised from the dead, who has authority over all things. The good news is that he is good. The good news is that he did pay for your sins, the sins of sinners. The good news is that if you trust in him, then he has authority over all things for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for, frankly, the wonder that you are. 
may we be captivated by you and everything about you. And may we submit ourselves wholeheartedly, joyfully, lovingly, expectantly to you. And this I pray in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you of uh, our Sunday school classes coming. In the next 15 minutes, I remind you too of elders available to pray. I remind you of the tour coming up if you're new to us and would like to, to find out more about us and walk around our building with someone who can point out some things to you. Also, the response to the benediction is, Jesus is Lord, hallelujah. Now, when you say that, what you're saying is, I know that he has authority over me, all things. And when you say hallelujah, you're saying, and I like that. That's good. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy, to only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. <clears throat>